Hi, I'm Kitty Swank. You may remember me from Star Trek Deep Space Nine as Minister Rosan or Lawaran, the evil Vorda. You are listening to Trek Untold, and you're going to be happy you are. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's episode, we're chatting with the highly talented Kitty Swink, whose career spans stage and screen with some Star Trek sprinkled along the way. Trek fans will know Kitty best as Bajoran Minister Rosan from the DS9 episode Sanctuary from Season 2, and the Vorta Luarn in Season 7's Tacking into the Wind. You may also know Kitty from her appearances in Babylon 5, Monk, Crossing Jordan, Leverage, Chicago Hope, Law and Order, NYPD Blue, Judging Amy, Joan of Arcadia, and many more, in addition to being a producer nowadays on the Riley Parra series and the upcoming movie Storyville. Beyond television and film, Kitty is a major part of the theater world and is a co-artistic director of the Antaeus Theater Company in California, where she's also appeared as an actress in The Cripple of Inishman, Picnic, Macbeth, Tonight at 8.30, and The Curse of Oedipus, just to name a few. She's performed on stages across the country from coast to coast, including New York City at the start of her career, the place where she would also meet her eventual husband, Armin Shimmerman. You may have heard that name before on this show a few times, since after all, he was Quark on all seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. The pair has performed together in many theatrical productions, and we'll hear a little about some of those today, too. Kitty has earned a spotlight onto her career with her extensive resume in performing, directing, producing, and most importantly, advocating for awareness and improvements of treatment for pancreatic cancer, an often fatal disease that she is a survivor of. Kitty has an amazing story about that, along with plenty of Trek tales and other anecdotes and insight from a very noteworthy career that gets the full Trek Untold treatment today. So all you Star Trek theater and Shakespeare fans, stick around because we've got a lot to unpack today with Kitty Swink. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com stores slash Trek Untold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. 
I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello and welcome back to Trek Untold. Now joining us on the other side of the screen, you may recognize her from her two appearances in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but beyond that, she has a laundry list of appearances in other shows and films and a very deep background in the theater world. Uh, In fact, she is currently one of the associate artistic directors at the Antaeus Theater. Co-artistic directors. Co-artistic director. (laughs) And that's right, folks. We're talking to Kitty Swink today. Kitty, how are you? I'm good. I'm really good. How are you, Matthew? I'm doing all right. It's so great to chat with you. You know, we had a lot of fun speaking with Armin a few months back. He was amazing. And uh, I'm really excited to be able to talk to you because, you know, it's, it's very rare that I get to talk to a husband and wife couple that's been on Star Trek together. There's a few of us. There's yeah. a few. It's a very small list. There's a few. So let's just jump right on in here. And uh, I'd like to kick things off by asking you the first question I ask all of my guests. Uh, and that's Kitty. What is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Watching it with my brother, Don, who grew up to be a rocket scientist. He's a uh, six and a half years older than I am. It was always clear that he was going to be a scientist. It was always clear that I was not going to be a scientist, but I think he became uh, an aerospace engineer and uh, did all that work. He's a a chemical engineer and an aerospace engineer because of his love for Star Trek. And the only thing better than watching that as a child with him, the original show, okay, I'm really dating myself, was when Armin became a regular on Deep Space Nine and he and his wife and kids came to town and we walked them through the space station and he was like a kid in a candy shop. And when he went back to work on something, uh, he was working on a space shuttle project at the time and he said, well, I was just on Deep Space Nine and all of the science geeks were like, wow, that's so, so the fact that Armin and I could provide that for my brother Don, who I love dearly, was pretty great, I have to say. That's a heck of a memory. Uh, you know, it's very rare we talk to somebody who's got a brother who's a literal rocket scientist. So that's crazy. <laughs> yes, he, he's one of the few people who can say it is rocket science. Yes. <laughs> now, did you have a favorite episode growing up? That's tough. I, I love the sort of, even as a kid, I loved the wit of Trouble with Tribbles. And I liked the con episode. But I think maybe my favorite episode was the episode with Jill Ireland where Spock got to show his emotions and then you know how hard that was for him i loved that episode good choices good choices Uh, so let's let's spend some time getting some background on who kitty swink is so can you tell us where you were born who your parents were what they did and what a little kitty want to be when she grew up i grew up in portland oregon um my father was a a lawyer when i was a child he was a labor lawyer and he was the lawyer for the um the transit union. He was a lawyer for the loggers. Uh, he had an office in Portland, but he also had an office in um, Grants Pass, which is down near Ashland. And as a kid, he would, we would take a month and live in this motel with a swimming pool and a kitchenette. And they had, fa- we had family friends who lived in Grants Pass and they would come over and we would swim all day. And then at night they would take us to Ashland to see shows. And I think that's likely when I decided I wanted to do that for a living. I wanted to do Shakespeare. Don't tell my husband. He's not my very favorite playwright to do, but he's pretty darn close. I have to say Shaw is probably my favorite or Tom Stoppard. I I just like doing theater, good theater. And um, I think in seventh grade, I was sitting in the cafeteria with Patty DeRocher, 
And she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an actor. And she laughed at me. So there you are. I had to do it because I was so ticked off. That's completely ego-driven. There it is. So you were that young and Shakespeare struck a chord with you? Yeah, I think people are made afraid of Shakespeare in the United States. But if it's well done and well spoken and the actors actually know exactly what they're saying, then the audience is going to get 80, 90 percent of it, even little kids. And Shakespeare didn't write for the upper classes. He wrote for the groundlings. I mean, there's stuff that the upper classes got, but the groundlings, the people who had no education, came and stood in front of the stage. And I, I love that wide swath that you can appreciate it on any level. It's pretty great. So now you're pursuing this as your craft. Uh, where did you go to learn more about it? Did you go to an acting academy or acting school somewhere? Um, so I got into all these groovy BFA programs because I wanted to be an actor and my parents were not interested in that. My dad wanted me to be a lawyer. My mom, I think a businesswoman, that's what she wanted. And they didn't think it was a good career. <laughs> Probably right. It wasn't a good career path, but I wanted to take it. So I went to University of Oregon and my deal was I could be a major in theater if I also got a lit degree because with a lit degree, I could go to law school. So I... I think that actually served me very well to have a lit degree. I learned how to read and think because of that. And so I have that. And then I uh, went back and lived with my parents for uh, a short time, saving up money at the end of my college uh, degree. I worked in a bank, uh, sang telegrams on my lunch hours and when I was off and I did dinner theater (laughs) so I could save every cent. So I was working sort of 24 hours a day when I wasn't partying with the cute rock and roll boys that I liked at that time. So that was, and then I moved to New York and I took acting classes and I started doing theater and commercials and there you go. That's it. And can you recall who you were taking acting classes from in New York? Cause that's kind of like a whole different uh, thought process too, a kind of different acting process, right? Yeah. Um, so one, one of the people that I studied with Armin um, introduced me to, and her name was Ada Brown Mayadoff. And she, Ada was quite a funny, she was a stout, short, little English woman, and she was very, and she had come to the United States to work with Tyrone Guthrie when he opened the Guthrie Theater. And I don't think I understood a word that Ada told me. But Armin, who was in a different class of Ada's, uh, had a scene partner named Barbara Durchy, and Barbara translated for Armin, and Armin translated for me. And there you have it. Yeah. So I did learn a lot from Ada, but not directly. There was a, like a a squiggly path to get there. But that was that was my sort of favorite. There's a lot of terrific acting teachers here as well, including Armin and me. But yeah, but yeah, it was a very different place in New York. Yeah. Well, I like how that story kind of makes a perfect segue into asking about your husband, uh, Armin Shimmerman. Uh, so did you uh, know anything about him before you moved to New York? Had you heard of him before? Or is it first time meeting him in the city? He was, uh, I met him in the city. <laughs> so I used to, on Monday nights, uh, whenever I wasn't working as an actor, I would bartend in Broadway theaters. And um, on Monday nights, I would go meet this guy named George Hearn, who's a very well-known Tony nominated actor for a drink. And um, one Monday night, my old boyfriend was visiting me from Portland. And uh, I said, go to Barrymore. I I was working at a show. I was working at Sugar Babies with with, um, Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller. And uh, I 
said, go to Barrymore's, which was this bar I used to meet George and I. I said, there'll be a redheaded guy sitting at the bar. He's about 20 years older than we are. Introduce yourself to him and, and, uh, and say, you're my old boyfriend from Oregon. So he did that. And then my best friend uh, in New York, uh, Julie Bosworth, came by the theater before the show and said, what are you doing after intermission? And I said, as soon as they break down the bar, I'm going to go meet my old boyfriend, Mark, and George for a drink at Barrymore. She said, well, I'll come by and get you. So she walked by the theater and we walked into Barrymore's and I met Armin and Julie met my old boyfriend and they got married and had two kids. Their oldest daughter is my goddaughter, one of my goddaughters. And um, it was a good night. I mean, George didn't get a girlfriend, but he was having a good time. He didn't mind. It was fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm like struggling to figure out what to ask next. Cause I do, I want to ask more about armor or do I want to ask about Mickey <laughs> Rooney? Cause he just threw that at me too. I mean, uh, yeah, I didn't really ever hardly talk to Mickey Rooney, but there was all these wonderful old bug billions in the show. One of them's name was Sid Stone and he was on, uh, he was a regular on the Milton Berle TV show. And Sid was, to this day has my heart and he would about once a month and he had entrances through the lobby and I was managing the bar at that time. So I would be in the main lobby bar and he would sit and talk, stand and talk to me for a while. And so he did a lot of sweet things, including taking me for Chinese food every once in a while. And when Armin and I got serious, he asked Armin out to lunch and said, I want to know your intentions. <laughs> and, um, you know, Armin, said, well, I, I'm really honorable. I, I'm intending to, this is the girl for me, kind of thing with Sid. And when Armin's dad, who was an immigrant, um, came to the show, the house manager put a seat at the back of the back aisle, uh, right on at the top of the orchestra. And when Sid came in to make the entrance through the orchestra, he stopped and in Yiddish spoke to my father-in-law and they had a lovely conversation. And then they walked on the aisle and Armin was sitting next to his dad said, all the old matinee is like, oh my God, he must be so important. What's he? <laughs> and Armin's father was completely confused, but had a great time. So that was pretty great. He said, well, wasn't that the guy that was just, was so sweet. So yeah. <laughs> That's really cute. Oh, and here's the other story about that show is Ann Miller had a different wig for every eight shows a week. She had eight wigs on stands downstairs. And one of the chorus boys on Halloween one night swiped one of the wigs and wore it out for Halloween. And they put in all the chorus guys' contracts that they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't touch Ann's wigs anymore. That's my other great story about sugar babies. Only in New York would that be a thing that would have to happen. It's don't touch Ann's wigs. <laughs> Now, was this show your first professionally booked gig as a performer, or was it a different one in New York? I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't. A, I was the bartender. I wasn't, oh, okay, so you were a bartender here. Okay. Yeah. My first professional show in New York was uh, a one-act play by George Bernard Shaw in an off-Broadway theater. And if I could tell you the name of that play, I would. I can't remember the name of the play anymore. Well, you know, theater is such an interesting thing, too, because we've, we've spoken to a lot of folks who do Star Trek, and so many of them come from the world of theater, and it's a very type of different environment. Uh, so, you know, let's just say, you know, talking in your early formative days of performing on stage professionally, uh, what is something that you learned back in those days that you continue to use today? The most important thing I learned, do your homework. Be prepared. Be ready to go. You know, luck, uh, luck is fickle, but you better be ready when luck 
uh, touches you to take it. And so uh, Armin and I, and I, I think everybody I know on Star Trek, we're all really serious about a craft. And one of the things about science fiction, I haven't done a lot, I've done some, I did a Babylon 5, I did a couple of Star Treks, I, I did a, a science fiction web series a couple of years ago where I was the bad guy, what a surprise. Um, but it, it requires being able to handle language really well because there's a lot of stuff that people aren't going to know. There's a lot of techno babble and you can make it approachable. If you can say Shakespeare, you can say techno babble. And I think that's a lot of it. Yeah. I think that's where there's, and Gene had this idea that it, it wagon train in space, but also um, they were big, uh, 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 morality plays. The, every episode had a morality play involved in it, or almost all of them. And I think that's where classical theater comes from. And even though I don't just do classical theater, it's um, the kind of theater I was trained in first. It's the kind of theater that I uh, am in thrall of still. Now, I know that you and Armin have performed uh, many, many times on stage and a few times as well on screen as well. But uh, just talking theater right now, uh, can you tell us about maybe some of the times that you and Armin have worked together professionally? Oh, we've worked together professionally a lot. The first time we worked together professionally on stage, are you talking about on stage? Just on stage right now, yeah. Yeah, was in a show called Love Slavers Lost, one of Shakespeare's more difficult comedies um, at the Barter Theater in Virginia. It was a it was a trip. It was a really strange, uh, but we had a great time. We had a lovely uh, group of actors, one of whom is still a very dear friend, um, who is a, probably the one of the best-known classical actors in Washington, D.C. His name's Ed Giro. He sort of famously played Justice Scalia um, in a play about Scalia that was at the Kennedy Center, and he's toured around the United States in it. Um, so that's, that's the first time, the last time we did it. We did a benefit reading of Much Ado About Nothing, which um, is Beatrice's sort of my heart and soul. And our new dogs, every dog we've ever had, because we're such Shakespeare nerds, uh, has been named um, after Shakespearean characters. So we have a new set of puppies, Beatrice and Benedict. And they squabble like Beatrice and Benedict and they're madly in love with each other like Beatrice and Benedict. And he's quite mischievous and she's smarter than he is. I think it's perfect. Very fitting. Very fitting. Now, uh, you know, we've talked to a lot of couples who uh, have, let's say, uh, you know, they've both been actors and they've helped each other out with rehearsals and that kind of thing, but not necessarily couples who have performed together simultaneously on a professional setting. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is that like to actually perform with your husband face to face, side by side on an actual stage? I mean, do you guys ever take home the emotional journeys that your characters go through? Are you able to separate it? Uh, it's such a unique thing. I I'm really curious about hearing how that works. I think when we played uh, Claudius and Gertrude in Hamlet, we didn't take it home, but we didn't take it home that way, but we did take it home where we would like dissect the scenes. We would spend a lot of time crunching through the scenes and seeing how we could craft them and shape them and make them uh, better. It was a... <laughs> It was a double cast, the, the, um, because both Claudius's and both Gertrude's were very working actors. Uh, Tony Amendola was Armin's double, who's, you know, most uh, science fiction fans know Tony. Uh, we've worked together a lot, Tony and I, and, um, and Armin and Tony have worked together a lot. And it was really interesting because it was a very different relationship between Tony and I than Armin and I. 
And the young man who played um, Hamlet was unusually for Hamlet, a very uh, large, muscular, you know, you usually think of him as a, not a man of action. He was, he, he was hugely buff. And I'm very tall. I was even taller. Those, you know, 18 years ago, I was even taller. And I was, I'm very, I'm a skinny person. So he would throw me around the stage and beat the living daylights out of me if during the closet scene, if I was on doing the show with Tony. If I was doing the show with Armin, he wouldn't do that. I think he was afraid of Armin. So um, one day I said, don't, don't do that. Don't, you know, I was wearing knee pads. I, I would get fingerprints in my arms. And one day I said, if you do that again, you're going to really be sorry. And he didn't believe me. And I came up from the floor and went, bam, against his ear with a cut finger. And kind of, I mean, he must have outweighed me by 100 pounds. I kind of knocked him. And after the, after at intermission, he said, why did you do that? I said, I told you, don't do that to me anymore. I, I've asked the stage manager. I've asked you, don't do that. And um, he actually, I think, ap- apologized to Armin, who was on with him the next show. So there you go. That was that was a day. That's definitely a day. All right. That's definitely a, a way to put that. Uh, so yeah, and on, on TV as well, I've seen you guys uh, on your resumes have worked together a few times. The one I was able to find a clip of was, was actually from an episode of uh, leverage called uh, the juror number six job. <laughs> With Jonathan directed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also that was uh, where you were a judge. Armin was a witness. Uh, Jonathan directed. And that was also a, uh, the scene with Aldous Hodge, who went on to be in Star Trek Discovery, one of the short treks, uh, the one called Calypso. He's craft. Uh, right. He's also, by the way, for all the nerds out there, he's going to be playing uh, Hawkman in the new Black Adam movie coming out soon, too. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about that scene, because that's that's a real interesting kind of scene. A lot, a lot going on there. Uh, it, you know, it was really fun because it was like old home week and Armin was there for just one day and I was there for three days. Aldous was sort of starting his career at that point. He could not have been a nicer. He was so dear. He's just like the nicest, serious and funny at the same time. Really great guy. Uh, Franz Spiner was there, who we've also known since before any of us had anything to do with Star Trek. So that was fun. And, um, you know, as we said, when we were talking, when Armin was here, we were talking, we've known Jonathan forever. So it was magically fun. And my poor husband had to... um, say such, uh, such, you know, his, he was playing a guy who they were, all this was completely humiliating on the stand. So it was, uh, it was quite a day. And Brent from, from his defendant's table cut going, Kitty, oh, Kitty, doing his um, Patrick Stewart invitation. It was, it was, it was a, a trip. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a great story about Jonathan Frakes. A lot of people don't treat extras very well. And we had uh, on the jury were one series regular, Beth Reifgrass was a, uh, one of the jurors. And there was a, a, a guest star uh, on the jury. And then the rest of the jury was extras. So when we shot the first scene with the extras, Jonathan had everybody on set except the extras and they came in one at a time and he announced their name and everybody gave them a round of applause. So they felt welcome. They felt honored. They felt valued and they were the best, most active paying attention extras I've ever seen in my life because they were treated with such respect. I have to say that was amazing. It was great. 
You know, we've spoken to a lot of folks who have worked with Jonathan, not just in terms of actors, but we also spoke with uh, one of the editors on Discovery, and he even said, like, it's so amazing. He gets to, you know, t- talk with one of his heroes from growing up. I mean, you know, I've had the chance to talk with him, too, and it's it's amazing just how, you know, it feels like you're the only person in the room when he's talking to you. So that's great to hear yeah. that. That's, that's something he does on set, too. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And I imagine your dad must have been very happy to see that you performed in so many roles as some sort of legal authority figure in a lot of your stuff, right? Yeah, I've played recurring judges on two shows and then a judge on leverage and a judge on, yeah, I've done a lot of judges and a lot of lawyers. Yeah. But a lot of, my father was a lawyer, then he was a judge. Um, I'm, I'm a handsome woman, not a beautiful woman. Uh, I, I'm physically, uh, you know, sort of imposing skinny though I am, I'm, I'm, you know, tall and strong. And I think people just thought, Oh, judge. So there you go. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States with a five-year survival rate. That's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters 
and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Kitty, let's move into some Star Trek discussion here. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, you appeared in two episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Let's just start with that second season episode first. Uh, that's the episode Sanctuary. Uh, you were Minister Rosan. Uh, now, had you previously auditioned for any other Star Trek shows or anything on DS9 even uh, before you hit this role? I had never, I had never auditioned for Next Generation. It was my second DS9 audition. And at that time, they really did not hire like spouses or that kind of stuff. So it was a little, but Jimmy Lowry Johnson was great. And uh, I went in and I read and I got it and I went to work. It was fun. And I knew the woman who played the Scria, uh, who had such a hard time that made a cup really, really made her sick. She had a very hard time, but Deb is a terrific person and somebody I know from being in the theater world. So that was really fun. And uh, Avery Brooks was unbelievably kind to me. Uh, on the set, the hardest job in the world. I mean, having been a recurring character on a few shows and doing theater and being an artistic director and, you know, or having, I did a lot of episodes when we first got here about soap opera called Santa Barbara, you know, you're part of the family, but coming in, even as the wife of somebody who was a regular on the show, being a a guest star or a one day guest star, particularly it's, it's the hardest job in the world because everybody else is up to speed, does it all the time, knows their character, and you've got one day to make it work. And uh, Avery could not have been more gracious. It was lovely. I had a good time, yeah. See, I was definitely curious about whether or not, like, this role was kind of, uh, I don't want to say awarded to you, but it, if it helped that you were, you know, arm and spouse. But it sounds like it was actually more of an uphill battle because you were. I think so, yeah. Uh, in that episode, also, though, was Walter Koenig's son, which was yes. awful yeah. unusual, and that was, it was fun. He was a nice guy, so, yeah. Yeah, he's unfortunately no longer with us, uh, but... Yeah, that's really great to see them together. You see, uh, you know, the son of, of Chekhov in a Star Trek show. It's an amazing thing. And I just want to also add, we actually spoke with Deborah May way back when this podcast first began, you and did. she was wonderful. Yeah, Deborah May's one. Debbie's great. She's great. Yeah. You know, she had a really meaty role as well, a really weighty role, because this episode is a very weighty episode, too. I mean, it's one of those, I feel like, forgotten episodes of DS9, uh, because it's just so uncomfortable and still so relevant today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when you read that script first... Today. Yeah. Yeah. When you first read that script back when it was originally being written, I mean, what did you think about it? I don't think it's a big surprise to anybody who knows anything about the Star Trek world, but I'm pretty up in liberal politics. So, um, and have been, you know, like getting arrested for, as a teenager for um, protesting the war in Vietnam. So there you go. That okay. I'm aging myself again, but um, yeah, it was, it was a, and of course I had to be the, person on the you know I'd be the person who was building the wall on the southern border of the United States which is always interesting to play against your own personal beliefs it's it's in some ways more fun may not be the right word it's it's interesting to because you have to make that you have to make yourself right you're as an actor you, you have to believe you have to think the thoughts that person thinks so you have to make yourself right and it was hard it was fun yeah, it's more about you not necessarily being the bad guy. It's because you are, in your mind, the good guy. So you have to kind of project right. that image. Exactly. Yeah. 
it's kind of weird to make this uh, connection here, but in pro wrestling, you know, they always say it's better to play the bad guy than the good guy anyway. It's more fun. It, it is more fun. It's way more fun, yeah. Now, we should add also, Armin is in this episode, but he's not really in it much. So, I mean, do you guys go and film in the same days? Did you cross paths during your, your shoot day at all? I didn't see him at all. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I saw him briefly in the last season on the episode I did, but only briefly. I mean, we've done, like, we've done a lot of television and film. We did a wonderful, goofy little um, science fiction apocalypse movie called Diani and Divine Meet the Apocalypse. And it was like summer camp because we were all living in a lodge up in the middle of nowhere. And it was Armin and I, and in the room next to us, in the bedroom next to us was Harry Groner and his wife, Don Didowick. And, uh, you know, we just sort of knew everybody on this. It was Ari Gross. I don't know if you know Ari, but he's a wonderful actor. It was so much fun. Just ridiculous fun. Yeah. And we showed that also, you know, we mentioned already Avery, we mentioned Deborah May, but uh, really the crux of the scene in this episode is, is more so about uh, Kira's character, uh, or, you know, Nana Visitor. Uh, now, had you previously worked together at all on stage in New York, or did you know Nana from your time in New York? No, uh, we had, um, Nana and I really got to know each other because of Arma doing Deep Space Line, but I think we met a couple of times before that because she did theater out here as well. And she did a a terrific production of a play at the Tiffany where I also had done a play um, to theater that no longer exists, sadly on Sunset Boulevard with my friend Cameron Watson, who's a wonderful um, director. He's directed me a few times an actor and Perry Gilpin, who was at that time Cameron's roommate and people know Perry from um, Frasier and other shows. She's a wonderful actress and, so I, I think we crossed paths through our mutual friends, um, but we didn't really know each other. And, and I, I have to, I, I think as the next generation cast is very close and I think the, um, some of the other casts are very close. So there is a core of um, Deep Space Nine people that are really close next Wednesday. I'm taking a hike with Terry Farrell. Um, Aaron was like a, uh, nephew to us. I miss him all the time. Uh, Max is like our crazy younger brother. And although he's a little older than I am, but you know, you get that idea. And, um, uh, it, you know, we're a family. We're totally a family. Michael Dorn um, drives up from his house, which is a long ways away to get my homemade bread. <laughs> and then we go out for vegan food because, because uh, that's the kind of kids we are. There you go. Now I just want to go to Worf's Bakery and get some Klingon bread. That's like such an amazing thing thinking about Michael Dorn baking bread. He doesn't bake it. He comes to get it from me. I bake, Ah. um, uh, I make this Irish brown bread that he really likes. Uh, It's really good, I have to say. It's good. He also likes Armin makes olive bread that he also likes a lot. So we we need a Cooking with Armin and Kitty show on YouTube now. (laughs) Armin has a very limited repertoire, but what he makes, he makes very well. I got to get some of that olive bread. But uh, anyway, back to Star Trek, which is apparently supposed to be more important than olive bread. We'll, we'll, we'll debate on that later. But, uh, you know, in this episode, you are playing a Bajoran character. So you got to wear some prosthetics here. Uh, was this the first time you ever wore prosthetics for a part? No. I'd worn stuff on stage. And I had done a bad horror movie, which shall remain nameless and is not on my <laughs> IMDb page. Thank you very much. Uh, so, no. But it, it, the Bajoran's not bad. I mean, it's just, it was a lot of wigs, but it was just this little thing that wasn't bad. The Borda was a lot more makeup. The Borda's a lot more makeup. And, oh, yeah, yeah. and purple contact lenses that cover your whole eyes. That was 
yeah, that was a lot. Yeah, we're going to come right to that in a second, actually. But I did want to ask about this episode. Uh, and just, this might be a general question as well for all the stuff you've worked on. But did you watch the episode of DS9 that you performed in? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I think we taped it because we we're, yeah, it was doing a play. So I taped it and saw it a couple of days later. Yeah. And what did you think of your performance? That was okay. <laughs> if you could do anything differently, what would you have done to change it and make it better for what you wanted to accomplish? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't, I didn't, I, I didn't really think, I didn't think about it at that time and I haven't seen it. I haven't seen that episode. I mean, I just sort of, if something comes on and I'm ironing, I go, Oh, look, let's watch that. But I haven't gone. I don't usually go look for myself on TV. Uh, I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's something I've learned here is obviously actors don't sit around and watch themselves on, on their different shows and films all the time, either they got alive. Uh, but you know, I'm always curious too, especially since, uh, you know, again, you're the spouse of someone who's on a long running syndicated TV show that time. I mean, are you checking out any of his shows? If, if it happens to be on, do you watch it? Or are you going out of your way to watch it? Well, what's it like? In, let's we say did, in this era. We watched it a lot. You know, we didn't always watch, but we watched it a lot. And there was a couple of episodes that we knew that felt important, like the siege of a or whatever the, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, we knew that was an important episode. There was a lot of those. There was a lot of really political episodes that we thought were important. Or, or we also watched the Bar Association, having both. I, I had been the pres, the vice, the vice president of the Screen Actors Guild, and Armin had been on the national board. So, Bar Association was something that we really wanted to watch, and we did. Anytime Wally Shawn was on, we watched. Um, he's kind of amazing. He's pretty amazing. So. That was great. Yeah, I remember definitely shows we went out of our way to see. The episode with Nana and Harris Hewlin, who was also in the bar standing and talking to George Herner, my old boyfriend, Mark Bosworth, the night that Armin met. uh, We watched that episode a lot because it's extraordinary. Those two performances are so good. Yeah, that's someone who I'd love to speak to uh, one of these days. Um, Yeah, amazing performance in that. Um, But yeah, since we also, you know, we, we brought up now the other appearance you had. So let's just jump into that. And okay. uh, Kitty returns to Deep Space Nine in season seven <laughs> in the final arc of the series. Uh, you're playing a Vorta named Luaren. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm curious, again, did you audition for this episode? Or was it a callback because they remembered you? Uh, how did this come about? I, I, they, I don't know. They called me in. And um, I just got a call one day from my agent saying, can you go in? And I said, sure. And I happened to be with Armin. And I'm going to do something after he did his ADR on... Uh, the episode before that. So Jeff Combs was on deck waiting to go in to loop his stuff after Armin. And we were talking, I said, I'm, I'm reading for a board tomorrow. And he said, here's the trick. Be obsequious. I'm going to take my glasses off so I won't be able to see, but you'll be able to see it. He said, be obsequious and go like this. So I, I didn't wear glasses in those days. So I was obsequious and I flared my eyes and I booked the job. Thank you, Jeff Gomes, wherever you are. So that's the secret to being avoided is flaring your eyeballs. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> and, and you were really... serious, yeah. And then I played Avorda in a um, Star Trek game one time. Because yeah, they... I was going to ask about that effect. I tried to find a long play of that. There are videos out there on YouTube. You can watch the whole game be played. Uh, have oh. you ever seen yourself in the game? Have you ever watched the game or have any connection to it beyond just the, the gig? No, I just it's a gig. I, <laughs> I don't. I, here's the game I play. Scrabble. I used to play poker. I used to play my, I used to pay my bills in New York playing poker. <laughs> yeah. you know. 
So as for the part of Luara, now, again, this one you mentioned had a ton more makeup here. I mean, you've got that Dragon Ball Z-style power scouter on your head. Uh, so tell us, <laughs> what was that makeup process like? I mean, this looked like it was a lot more difficult and a lot more arduous for you. It was long. Uh, the I didn't mind these were... I, I didn't mind these. The ears were final, but they make you a little deaf. I, I had never worn contact lenses at that point, so I found them really uncomfortable because... They were scleras that covered your whole um, eye. And then I had three hair pieces on to make the hair thing work because at the time my hair was about this long. So that was uncomfortable, but it was fine. It was fun. And I, I think I started at like four o'clock in the morning and finished at one o'clock in the morning that night. Um, Cause they shot some stuff while I was in makeup probably. And then, yeah. So but it was really fun. I was working with a lot of people I knew and loved. Andy Robinson is one of our dearest friends. He killed me at DED and um, um, John Vickery. Um, John Vickery was on the episode and I love him. Uh, Larry Pressman was there. I mean, it was just like a lot of, it was old home week of people that I knew and, and cared about. So what could be bad. Andy has directed me in so much theater and um, we've acted together and I just adore him. And uh, I just adored everybody on the episode. It was really fun. We had a good time. And we can't leave out, of course, Nanaz in that scene as well. Oh, we've yeah. got Renee's in that scene, Casey Biggs, uh, Salome Jens, who again, that's not the person I would love to speak with. I, I, har- I didn't talk to Salome very much because I think she was just trying to hold, she was so tired. She'd been working all week, um, but she was very generous and lovely. Casey and I, I, I have, <laughs> of the Rat Pack review, I've been married on camera to a lot of them, including Casey and I did a movie of the week together where we played husband and wife lawyer. So, you know, and we had already done that at that point. So that was fun. Casey, Jeff Combs, all those guys are, are buddies. They're pals of ours. So, uh, and we're all theater actors, so we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, it was pretty great. And Nana, it's interesting because I, I, I didn't work with Nana that much when I was working with her because we just didn't have that much interchange. But um, it, it's always so great to have to be in her presence when you're working because she's so focused. She's so incredibly uh, on her game all the time. It was, yeah. Now, we did mention that Luaren does not make it out of this episode uh, at all. Uh, she is D-E-D. Um, so the thing is, with that episode two, we basically see you, there's some action, and then we see you on the floor. I mean, was there ever a, a scene where you were actually filmed being shot, or was it just kind of always going to yes, be Yes, they filmed me being shot, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we filmed, they filmed me being shot, which was fun. I liked being shot. I, I, I did a movie once where I, like, they squibbed my uh, Paul Schrader film, uh, I was playing in Patty Hearst and they actually put a squib on my head and blew me up, but they don't show that in the movie. So I thought, so you put a pockmark in my forehead and you didn't show it. Come on guys. But yeah, but I, I love doing that. And, and Ron Moore said, if only I had, cause he created Laura and he said, if only I had known that you were such a good woman for that, I would have, you know, replicated you and had you come back. I was like, well, <laughs> too late now. Sorry. Thank you very much. And see. Yeah. <laughs> All right, very cool. So yeah, that is your time in Star Trek, and we already talked about the video game as well. Um, but you know, they're really, really fun roles that you got to play. In fact, you got to play Bajoran, and uh, you got to play a Vorta. I mean, that that's just so interesting too. You go from one end of the other to makeup time. <laughs> yeah, little yeah. nose piece to everything. I really wanted to play a Klingon. I was very upset that I was never a Klingon. 
I could see you being a good Klingon. That could have worked. Thank you. I think uh, I'm pretty sure it's a compliment in Star Trek terminology. Yeah. <laughs> it is in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I'm so glad you actually mentioned uh, Patty Hearst because I, I was thinking about actually asking you a few questions about that because uh, I was looking up that one too. And I saw that, uh, you know, I mean, that movie is pretty interesting because you got a, a film that's been directed here by Paul Schrader, who is, you know, a, a luminary in American cinema. It's a film that's got Natasha Richardson. You've got Ving Rhames. Uh, I know it didn't exactly do too well at the box office, but uh, it's kind of a, a unique film in a lot of ways is how it's shot how it's put together what do you recall about that film um i i recall that do you know what a forced call is uh, I, to, I do but you can tell our audience to make sure they know they have to give you 12 hours from when they release you to when you come back the next day and if they don't they have to pay you a penalty for that and they forced our call this first seven weeks they forced our call every single day the core sla people we were so tired that a couple of times i slept in my trailer because we were shooting on the other side of town to avoid having to drive home and drive back. I left in the morning with an extra set of underwear and my toothbrush. Well, I always have my toothbrush on a set, but there you go. And just slept in my trailer because I was so tired. We were just so tired. Um, but I, it was an amazing group of actors. It was an incredible group of actors. Natasha Richardson could not have been more lovely, uh, uh, Ving is a wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, it, it, it was terrific. Dana Delaney, uh, who sort of played my ex-girlfriend, who was now sleeping with Sinkyu. It was, <laughs> I was heartbroken. It was Francis Fisher. Amazing, amazing actors. Um, so it was my first time getting um, main title billing on a film. And I went to school and these people, they were so generous. And Paul didn't give a lot of notes to the actors, some, but he was always gracious. And, you know, people think, oh, he made all these crazy, difficult, dark movies. And he is a dark guy, but he was uh, really kind. And the the first thing we did is they took us to San Francisco, the, the main company, the members of the SLA and Paul and the producer's assistant and the prop guys. And we lived in a one bedroom apartment with one bathtub uh, and rehearsed for four days. We went to Daly city and sat in the closet. They locked Patty in each one of us took a turn being locked in the closet. Um, It was a trip about the third day we figured out and, and we all had a gun. We carried these guns around. That's why the prop guys were there. So, because they handed them to us, and then at the end, before we got on the planes to come back, they took the guns back from us. But about the third day, Natasha figured <laughs> Natasha figured out that we could um, join the Y down the street and have a hot shower. So we all <laughs> we all sort of rebelled and joined the Y for a week and went and had a hot shower. It was great. It's fantastic. We loved it. And um, we cooked for each other and we rehearsed together and we lived a communal living experience for a week before we came back and started shooting. Yeah. And one day we had a, the afternoon off and uh, Dana Delaney and I went for a walk and we went up to the Mark Hopkins, which is this famous hotel at the top of this hill. And Abby Hoffman was in the lobby and I thought this couldn't be more perfect than having Abby Hoffman. <laughs> Dana went, did you see who that was? I went, oh. She said, it's Abby Hoffman. So, and so we went and checked out Abby Hoffman. That was 
counterculture meets counterculture. It's great. And we had a, all the women in the movie had a um, underarm hair growing contest because we were supposed to let her under, because, so there you go, that's it. And we, we, they actually blew up a house in the, um, in the neighborhood when they have the police kill everybody except Patty and the, and the um, couple. Yeah, it was a trip. Yeah, real fascinating movie. It's not the easiest thing to find out there. I think it's available on DVD. That's probably the best way to track it down. So, yeah, uh, yeah just such such a yeah, trip is a good way to put it. It's such a trip kind of a movie. But uh, yeah. yeah, let's talk about some more theater stuff here because as we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, you are part of the Antaeus Theater Company. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd like to hear how you got involved with it. And uh, let's, let's just start there. How did you first get involved with the Antaeus Theater Company? Uh, so Armin and I were members of a uh, another company called uh, the Matrix Theater Company. And there were a lot of people that were crossed over between the two. Armin was asked to join uh, Antius as I was getting towards the end of my um, chemo and radiation for pancreatic cancer. And um, he was like, I don't want to do that. And I said, no, you need to go back out into the world. I'm fine. I can take care of myself. Don't worry about it. And so he did a reading with them of a really interesting play cycle. Uh, It was a two-night thing. Uh, called the Dickens Project. Uh, it was a story about Charles Dickens, and you know, not not a biographical story, but a, using him as a character. And uh, I went to see it, and then I saw some other things, and uh, somehow I got asked to do a reading, and one thing led to another, and they invited me into the company about six months after Armin and uh, the. I was in, you know, I, I love to be in uh, an ensemble of actors who want to work together all the time. Some of the, most of the people, not all the people, but most of the people that I spend in a non-pandemic world, uh, a good amount of my time with are members, are other members of the NTS Theater Company. So it's an important part of our, our lives. And then in t- 2008, I think I became an associate artistic director and eventually matriculated to co artistic director but I still act with the company so yeah I'm, I'm an our our artistic directors always are actors from the ensemble it was founded by Dakin Matthews who has certainly appeared on Star Trek but I think people would know him from a lot of other things he's done as well and I've, I know they've also done some directing with uh, some of the productions there as well uh, but I did want to ask about something that our viewers and our audience listening to this can actually see on YouTube and that was a skit that you directed, which was The Curse of Oedipus. And it's got a great little cameo from Michael Dorn in there. Uh, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? You know, I I don't really remember doing it. <laughs> I don't. I mean, we, were doing Oedip- we were doing a production of Oedipus, uh, a new adaptation by a really wonderful uh, playwright named Ken, Ken, Kenneth Cavender. And... Um, some and our our friends uh, gave an Etta who wrote Diani and Divine the, the Apocalypse wrote this nutty uh, little video. It's not my favorite. My favorite is the one when Armin was directing Crucible with Jeff Wade. You should look for that. Um, and how because they're directing together, they're doing everything together, and it ends up with the two of them in the shower together, which is hysterical and squabbling. So uh, I, I don't really remember. <laughs> I don't really remember doing that person about it this thing but i yeah i yeah i know i know i did it there you go we did so many of these goofy promos at the time that I don't know. 
Um, it's totally great they did it because I feel like, you know, especially in New York, one of the things that bothers me about the scene is that there's such a disconnect between video and theater. There's a big disconnect between these things. And like, you know, I've done some filming for some different people here in New York and they don't really understand really where to stand, what to do, how to connect audio things, things like like, all these technical issues that I don't really think about because they're thinking about it from a theater perspective. So Mm -hmm. uh, I find it really great that you guys are, are kind of pushing forward into that, that video realm, because it's really important to make sure that theater does continue. You kind of need to marry those two things together a little bit. Well, NTS actually made a choice. You know, everybody was doing zoom readings or, or uh, sometimes filmed readings, but you know, socially distanced and all that stuff. And what we decided to do when we're about to drop our second batch was these zip code plays, which were written by members of the NTS playwrights lab and uh, fully produced radio plays, but all done remotely, completely safe with people getting an entire um, sound kit delivered to them and videos on how to set it up. And our genius sound producer would walk people like me who are Luddites through the process of actually doing it. And the first six are wonderful. We've had over 45,000 listens, which is amazing because people can't come to our theater in Glendale, California from Ireland necessarily, but they can hear it. And people in Singapore won't necessarily see our production of Measure for Measure, directed by Armin Sherman and Liz Swain, but they can hear the zip code plays. And we have the second group landing May 20th. And just here's a quick commercial. You can hear them on the NTS website or at any of the places you go to listen to your podcasts. You can Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and they're really fun and interesting and beautifully produced. Yeah. That's really exciting. I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing that kind of stuff. So I heard in an interview that you recently did, uh, you said that a show isn't complete without an audience. And again, we're talking right now during the pandemic, and that's really changed how theater has been performed. Uh, So can you kind of tell us a little bit about what that means and you know, really about this past year or so, I mean, how has it been trying to do these performances without an audience reacting to you and giving you something to work off of? Particularly with comedy, it's so hard because you need that affirmation about what's working and what's not working. The audience tells you that they're with you or not with you. And you have to, you have to stay in the moment with the other actors you're working with, but you also have to be alive to who's watching you because they are the other character. They create catharsis. It's our job to have an emotional, uh, personal experience between us and the audience. That's why I love doing theater. I mean, I I like filming. Uh, I do. But it's not the same deeply personal experience. Every show is different. You You can do the same plan. One night it's flat funny, and the next night people are sobbing. And it's worked both ways because it's what's happening in the moment of the play. Um, so for me, it's been really hard. We've been doing, uh, the Playwrights Lab has been continuing to meet on Zoom. And one night I did this a wonderful reading with Harry Groner, who I'm sure most Star Trek fans know Harry. He's uh, been in a lot of episodes and he was in First Contact. And, um, and it was a very, very, very funny, a slightly, no, a uh, a little more than slightly naughty, funny play. And we were playing pandas. Okay. But you you can't hear the, it, it's so weird when you can't hear where you know the laughs should be. It's so hard to time it. An editor would do that. If you're shooting a film, the editor makes the timing work for the audience to come in and laugh and not cover the other lines. But you can't, it's not the same thing. And Zoom, as you know, as we're sitting here, there's buffering and drag and, 
So, uh, and I, Antias has this saying that, that the audience is part of our family. We're not just an ensemble of actors, but we're an ensemble of actors, theater artists, and audience members. And we take it seriously. I don't know any other theater where you would walk, you would be standing in a lobby and a Tony nominated or an Emmy nominated actor would come out and hang out with you and uh, uh, talk and answer questions or uh, just basically shoot the breeze with you for a long period of time. But, but we do that there. We, we do that and we believe in it. And because we did a, a really interesting new adaptation a couple of years ago of Native Son, uh, adapted by a playwright named Nambi E. Kelly. And we could tell the actors on the stage came to those of us who were in running the theater and said, the audience needs to decompress and so do we after the show. So those actors volunteered to stay every night and have a conversation with the audience because the audience needed to let it go or open it up about it or talk about it. It was important and it helped the actors decompress after this incredibly um, intense, painful experience of Native Son. And I, and I think we do that with every, whether we're doing the Cripple of Inishman or Measure for Measure or Native Son. And I, that's, that's why I, there's a few things I want to do when the pandemic's over. One of them I've been able to do because I'm fully vaccinated, which is hug my other friends who've been fully vaccinated. Um, it's great. I'm a hugger. I don't know about you, but I really needed to hug people. Uh, I, I hug my husband. That's nice. But it, I also need to hug other people. So that was one. Uh, but, but the thing I really want to do is I want to be in a live space and experience art, whether it's music or theater or seeing a movie, watching a movie on your home screen isn't the same as watching a movie with a crowd of people. It's, you need that, you need that bonding. You need to have group catharsis. The Greeks were right. You need to have catharsis together. That's my feeling. So, yeah, I mean, the theater world has completely changed so drastically. And, you know, I'm glad that you're vaccinated. You can start hugging people again and hopefully start performing soon enough. But, you know, especially here in New York, you know, the, the theater scene has been completely ravaged. The economy is going to be affected for who knows how long. Um, but on the other hand, too, a lot of things have been happening might be for the better, too. I mean, right now, at the time we're recording this, the whole information about Scott Rudin has come out and he's now backed out of a lot of stuff going on, thankfully. Um, and there's also been so much talk and discussion about people within the Broadway community trying to take it back and give it back to the masses because for so long uh, Broadway shows have been really more uh, easy to see for people who are more elite, who can afford to see the shows people who are, you know, folks like myself, it's so much harder. You really got to fight for tickets just to be able to see something. So, you know, the state of the industry has changed. Theater itself is going to have to change. Uh, what do you think is going to have to change for theater to meet this brave new world? And how are we going to adapt? That's a huge question. There's a lot of things we have to do. Of course, we have to look at the world through uh, an equity, diversity and inclusion lens that we, Many of us thought we were looking at it through. I thought I was woke, and we certainly have a, always uh, tried to be uh, open in our casting, not just about um, uh, BIPOC actors, but also about uh, gender issues and, and everything else. But we're trying, disability, everything. But uh, I think all, every theater maker in the country has to rethink that. 
in a very specific way. And T.S. has long had the feeling that we would find a way to get people into the theater who could otherwise not afford to come. That's been part of our brand for a long time, that um, we have people sponsor cheap tickets for students or for um, uh, people who didn't have the financial ability to come to the theater. One of the great things about the pandemic is that the, the zip code plays, the radio plays that we did are free people can see them, or maybe you can't get a babysitter and you can't afford to come to the theater, or you don't have transportation and get into Glenda. We, we try to make it as easy as possible. Uh, we work with a lot of, um, we, we have a lot of arts education programs so where we work with people who are um, bar, uh, barred from joining cultural institutions for one reason or another. They're in a prison school or they, uh, feel that they're not welcome in a space that's um, classically oriented or uh, they feel that the color of their skin would bar them. And we have always tried to break those walls down, but we need to do a better job and theater all over the country needs to do a better job. And as to your point about how expensive it is to see a Broadway show, the first Broadway show I saw, I paid for standing room tickets and they were $10, which was a ton of money to me in 1977. It was a lot of money to me, but it was doable. If I walked instead of taking the subway for a week, which meant, you know, I was putting 10 or 15 miles on my feet, I probably would do that anyway, given who I am. But that said, I didn't get on the subway. I never thought to take a cab and I didn't go to a bar and have a, at that time, $3.50 cocktail. Hard to believe that they were over that. Uh, because I was you know, broke, I didn't have any money. I was living with a whole bunch of kids in an apartment, but I could get there because I wanted to see it. And even even the cheapest seats in a Broadway theater with, at, at the tickets booth, which is half price, you can't see anymore. So I think that's something we have to address. In London, mostly you can get in to see plays. You can see them at a much more reasonable price. Um, yeah, we don't. We need to fix that, and so that's something we have to reckon with. But I'm more concerned at this moment of social justice in the world that we make sure that everybody's uh, voices are heard, everybody's faces are seen. Uh, I've been doing Shakespeare as we discussed all my life, and I've always felt that there weren't enough women's parts, and that uh, the English really have been great about this for a long time. That people just got cast because they were good. They didn't get cast because they looked like something. And, uh, and T.S. has been trying to do that, but we need to do more of it. And every other theater in the United States needs to do more of it. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about, you know, New York city and Broadway, you're in LA with the Antias theater company. So we're talking about basically, you know, these two places on opposite coasts, but for everybody nationwide in between those two States, uh, you know, what advice would you say to those struggling theater communities, uh, you know, in this post-pandemic world? What would you say to them to get them inspired and motivated to resume what they were doing? I'd say open your heart. Try and face down your implicit bias that you don't understand you have. I'm trying to learn every day about it. And find a way to underwrite people who could otherwise not afford to come to the theater and reach your hand out and invite them in. I believe art changes lives. It's one of my most deeply held beliefs that we can come together as people if we can share an experience through a book or a painting or a play or a movie or a piece of music. And if you can do that and share that piece of experience with someone who doesn't view the world the way you do. One of our 
one of my favorite donors is somebody who had been in the in the Reagan administration. We disagree about everything politically, but we come together over music and theater all the time. And it allows us to have very frank conversations. And it's kind of great because that's how we will break down this, these horrible walls in the United States, I think. Not just between um, Republicans and Democrats or between um, people who are uh, uh, lucky enough to have been born with privilege and people who are not lucky enough to be born with privilege. Uh, there's, there's so much work we need to do to, to make us uh, a cohesive whole and to bring kindness back into the world. And kindness is something I myself could learn a little lesson with. I'm a pretty smart mouth and uh, I should be better about <coughs> not using it so much that way. Now, Kitty, we have many aspiring actors who engage with this show each week. Uh, what's something that you know today about performing that you wish you knew back when you started? Let it go. Let it go. Move on. Uh, do your work the best you can. Leave that, you know, <clears throat> here's, here's I, I used to say this about auditions, but I believe it about everything. You want to do your best work. But that work you just did, that was that work. Now you have to do the work that's coming in front of you. And that's very hard to do, to just... Um, Rene Auberginois, who was a great philosopher in a very kind of wonderful ways, once said to me, step into the void. And I think that's it. That's the thing I didn't know that I wish I knew. Yeah. The other thing I would say, aside from that, is... Um, and I said it at the beginning, do your homework so you can let it go. If you're really prepared, you can live in the moment. Yeah, and step into the void is such a, a great way to put it also. That's like really, that's an Oprah moment right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Renee. Yeah. Now, for listeners who have been checking out Trek and Told for the past few weeks, they've heard your ads along with Armin about the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, as well as Mr. Jonathan Frakes. Uh, but really, it's only a small part of your story. Uh, so I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit today more uh, about your personal battle with pancreatic cancer. And, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about the organization. But uh, yeah, let's just first kind of, you know, for folks who didn't know, I mean, you are a survivor of pancreatic cancer, correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest girl in the world. I am so lucky. I not only did I have pancreatic cancer and survive, I had premenopausal pancreatic cancer and survive, which is almost unheard of. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional and then my voice chokes up. Uh, I was uh, doing Hamlet, which we were talking about, uh, and uh, Cecily Adams, who played Moogie on Deep Space Nine, was battling lung cancer. She was not a smoker, but she grew up in a house where both of her parents were chain smokers. Uh, both of her parents outlived her and she had a two-year-old and uh, a group of friends sort of came together around her to protect her. So I was worried about Cecily all the time. I knew I had a jock. I knew I had a pilot coming up that was shooting in <clears throat> New Orleans in March. So I tried to kind of, uh, I was like, I don't need to take any jobs. I'll just do the play and worry about Cecily. And at the same time, my father had Alzheimer's and, um, he was not safe. He wouldn't quit driving. I got his driver's license taken away, but I couldn't take his car away. And I had to, I was going to court to become his guardian because his bills weren't being paid. And <clears throat> I couldn't do what I needed to do to protect him. So I was under a lot of stress. And uh, in February of 2004, and I was losing a lot of weight, which I did not have to lose. And I had a lot of lower back pain. 
but I just thought I'm really stressed out and I tend to lose weight when I'm stressed out and I'm lower back pain because I'm a jock and I keep doing stupid things to myself. <clears throat> One day I was visiting Cecily in the hospital and her nanny from when she was a child was there. I'd flown in from Jamaica to see her and her nanny said, um, don't worry about her, you should worry about yourself. And I came home that day and I, I said to Armin, Sess's nanny said to me, don't worry about Sess, worry about yourself. And he said, well, maybe you should listen to her. Why don't you call the doctor? So I called my doctor and this is a Thursday. And she said, well, I can't get you in for a couple of weeks. I said, fine. It's just, you know, I will ask reflex. I'm losing weight. She said, okay. The next morning she called and said, you know, somebody just canceled. Can you be here in an hour? And I said, yeah. And I went and she said, well, you probably just have acid reflux. You're under a lot of pressure. Don't worry about it, but let's take some blood tests. This was the same doctor who listened to me when I had breast cancer 10 years before that. Really listened to me. And, you know, in your 30s, people often don't listen when you say these things. So um, over the weekend, we went to see Harry Groner at Antias do, uh, and my friend Angie Bird, do Mother Courage. And then we all went out afterwards uh, to Little Tony's, the, the pizza joint across the street have a beer and some pizza and I got up to go and I really didn't feel well. And I got up and I went in the bathroom and my urine was dark brown. Um, so that was scary. On Monday, it was a really bad week. When bad weeks happen, as Shakespeare would say, they come not in single spies, but in battalions. Uh, we were going to the funeral for a friend of our son who had emulated himself in his grandfather's car. And while we were at the service, and then we went to um, the wake afterwards at her house. And by the time we got home, it was after six o'clock. And there was a message on, the, my, on our answering machine saying, um, you're, you're really sick. Your kidney and your liver, your kidneys and your liver are shutting down. You need to go to the hospital right now. Call me, call me, call me right now. So I called and the doctor on call, my doctor had left and the doctor on call said, I don't really see anything in your chart. Why don't you just call in the morning? I'll just, uh, I'll just um, call you later. You call her in the morning. And about half an hour later, um, Alice Cruz, my, my uh, primary care doctor called me and said, you need to go to Cedars right now. And I said, can I just go to St. Joe's? It's closer. She said, no, you need to go to Cedars right now. They're expecting you to go right now. You're dying. We sat in the waiting room for about two hours, and during that two hours, I turned bright yellow um, because uh, I, I was jaundiced, completely jaundiced. Um, by 5.45 the next morning, um, my uh, surgeon who had done my breast cancer, who has <laughs> the greatest name of all time, Moses Fallis, so he goes by Mo, Mo Fallis, um, came into the little cubicle I was in and grabbed my toes and said, I know we're friends, but we're not going to be friends for a while. I'm your doctor. But right now I'm your doctor. We're hoping it's just your gallbladder, but we don't know. And um, a few days later, they felt that they had discovered that it was pancreatic cancer. I had a tumor on my cancer, on my pancreas and, uh, Took them a while to put a team together because the Whipple surgery that I had, which takes out half your stomach, about half my pancreas, my gallbladder, a couple of feet of intestine, in my case, 28 lymph nodes. You need a big, you need a 
10 hour window in an operating room in case something goes wrong and you need at least five or six hours to do it. And um, uh, they operated on me. Armin was surrounded by our friends in the waiting room and uh, Mo and his partner, Brendan were operating on me with uh, vascular surgeons and all these other surgeons in the room. And um, he came out and said, when they closed me, when they finished, he came out and said, I was about to come out and tell you we're going to close her up. We can't get the tumor. And at which point the tumor sort of floated up on a bubble. And uh, so uh, I was in the hospital for probably, I was all 70 days altogether. And I came out um, at that time I was five ten, And by the, time I got through my first round of chemo, I weighed 92 pounds. So I was a sick puppy, but I was determined. And I, uh, Bob Decker, my, uh, who's my longtime oncologist, really took good care of me and said, you know, go on the, do not tell her what her chances of survival are. She is not a statistic. She's really strong. I started going to the gym whenever I wasn't neutropenic when I had enough white blood cells. Uh, so uh, I got through it. I got through it. I don't know how I got through it, but I got through it. I'm so lucky. I was surrounded by my friends and great doctors and my family and Armin, who I can't tell you how amazing he was. And I then took it as my mission to think I, it's my job for the rest of my life to tell people there's hope that they can do this. And uh, so I sort of became involved with PanCan because Charlotte Ray, who you probably remember as um, from Facts of Life, uh, got pancreatic cancer. And I became her sort of um, rabbi through the whole process, says the Irish girl. I was her rabbi. And um, she became my, my grandmother. She was young to be my grandmother, but, you know, we did everything together. We would go speak at Pan Can events together. And um, when they came to me this year and said, will you take a more active role? I said, yes. And then I said, you know, my friend Jonathan Frakes lost his brother to pancreatic cancer. And she said, would you talk to him and see if you and he and Arlen can do something together? And then through the course of this, since we've been talking about it publicly, everybody who answers a tweet and says, I lost my mother, I lost my brother, I'm struggling with it, right? I talk to them. I talk to every single one of them. And Denise Crosby, who's an old friend, I did a play with her a gazillion years ago. Um, Denise lost her mother-in-law and her brother-in-law to it. Um, I just, uh, Richard Arnold, who was such a part of the Star Trek family, we lost him this year. Terry Erdman, who wrote a lot of Star Trek novels, is, is uh, a year and a half out, I think, from his Whipple. It's everywhere. And I will talk to anybody. I'll do anything I can to change these odds. Because it's not fair, and it's incredibly painful and terrifying. Oh, thank you for sharing that very personal story. Um, I mean, not just beating cancer once, but beating it twice. That, that alone is just amazing. So, uh, you know. Well, I had the world's easiest trip through... I, tell you the truth my breast cancer was pretty easy so I, I didn't have a bad bad case i was was caught really early i'm very lucky about that no i'm glad you were able to make it out both times though regardless because it's still a scary thing no matter what in every form cancer is a horrible horrible thing uh, so and thank you for raising awareness about pancreatic cancer and just how deadly it is um so you know we talk about pancan here a lot so for listeners who want to learn more about the organization and learn more about what they're doing how can they find that out 
they can go to PanCan, P-A-N-C-A-N.org. Uh, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, organization. That They just recently launched a new early detection program. And I think they're going to, one of the reasons why this disease is so deadly is because it's so hard to find. And there's so many things that nobody thinks to do. They're helping educate doctors. They have the world's largest database. They are saying, if you're over 50 and all of a sudden you have diabetes, uh, that might be a link to pancreatic cancer. If you uh, have the BRCA mutation, which is also a mutation for breast cancer, uh, uh, you might have pan- you you might be more prone to pancreatic cancer if you have this or this or this or that. They are going out of their way to get people tested uh, to teach doctors. You know, I'm lucky enough to live in a city where there's several centers of excellence on this disease, but there's lots of places in the United States where people don't have a clue. They just don't have a clue, not because they're bad doctors, but because they don't uh, see enough of it to know what to do. So. You need to have doctors be educated, but early detection is a big thing. And if you can take those things for yourself, like I have suggested to all of my nieces, particularly one of my brother's uh, ex-wife in her family is a huge amount of breast cancer. Well, there's likely a BRCA mutation in those girls coming from my side and from their side. So they should get... um, genetic counseling. They should get genetic testing. People didn't used to do that. And I know that there's people who are afraid of that because they think there's too much information. Well, if you walk around with a cell phone, people have information about you anyway. You're actually more protected by HIPAA, which are the privacy laws about healthcare, than you are by any other kind of thing in the world right now in terms of private information. So go get the test if you think you need it. Go to pancan.org, read what they've got going on. It's really great. So again, for everybody out there who wants to learn more about PanCan, there's going to be links in the show notes. So make sure you click on them. Uh, you know, cancer, I'm sure is the fact that everybody's listening in some way or another, and it's not necessarily pancreatic cancer. It could be any different type that's out there, but it's still one big community. So, you know, give back however you can. Uh, so Kitty, last question here today for you. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The family aspect, not just amongst the actors and the writers and the producers, but really everybody. Uh, One of the things I missed during the pandemic is going to a a convention and seeing people that I've seen over and over and over again. I miss the family. It's pretty great. It's very, very welcoming, very inclusive, and they believe in science. They believe in kindness. What more can you ask for in this world? All right. Well, Kitty, thank you so much today for all of your time, all your stories, and especially for sharing your survivor story as well. It's very important. I think more so than anything else we talked about Star Trek or acting today. So uh, thank you for all the work you're doing with the organization, you and your husband and Jonathan Frakes. Uh, Thank you so much for raising awareness about everything. And I look forward to meeting you and your husband, hopefully at a Star Trek convention one of these days. Once once it's safe to do that, I want to get autographs from all you guys. Okay. From your mouth to God's ears. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kitty. Thank you. And that was our chat today with Kitty Swink. And just one more time, please remember to take a look at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network or pancan.org to learn how you can take action with this group. After recording this episode, I actually learned that my own family has been directly affected by this particular type of cancer, something I previously never knew. So that's why it's so important to speak about things like this and advocate for a world where we can beat all forms of cancer and send them out of the airlock once and for all. Now, on a lighter note, the DS9 game Kitty Lenter Voice 2 that we spoke today a little bit about was The Fallen, 
and was in fact centered around Worf. Michael Dorn and much of the main cast did their own voices, with the exception of Avery Brooks' Captain Sisko, whose voice was instead performed by Kevin Michael Richardson, and Cole Meany's O'Brien, who was in this case performed by Michael Goh. And here's an interesting Worf fact for you about one of the shows we discussed today. The episode Tacking Into the Wind was the final appearance of Gowron, as Worf defeated him in a duel to become Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. Oddly enough, Worf has been the downfall of not just one, but two regimes in Star Trek history. In the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Reunion, Worf killed Duras, which permitted Gowron to rise to power unopposed. Years later in this DS9 episode, Worf closed the book on Gowron's time on the throne and handed power over to a more deserving person in his eyes, General Martok. So considering Worf is the Kingslayer, in the Klingon Game of Thrones, does this make Worf the Jamie Lannister of the bunch? Minus the incest, of course. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.